tonight's scripture reading will be taken from uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. For what the law could not do, and what it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He uh, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Thanks, Aaron. Good evening, family. Okay. How are you feeling today? Uh, give, give me like one to ten. Six point four. I didn't get a nap today. I'm pretty bummed about that. We actually made it to Mother's Day on Olive Garden. Can you imagine that? Last year we went to Olive Garden, Lancaster. You know, my Lancaster friends, we went down to Lancaster, the Olive Garden, and we got home from lunch at 4.42 last year. It was just brutal. You know, Lisa's family is like party of 36 kind of thing. And um, we got there today and we got in and out and we're done at 2.30. We were just like, we might actually get a nap and it never happened. So, all right. You're going to have to bring your energy tonight. I want us to think seriously about Romans chapter 8 together because if there's a more beautiful chapter in the Bible, I have yet to find it. Yes, I would argue that Romans chapter 8 is the culmination of probably the most beautiful chapter that you can find in the Bible as everything kind of comes together. Romans is probably the most intricate, the most complex, um, the most thorough presentation of the gospel message, meaning from beginning to end, what has God done for mankind and how should mankind respond to God? Romans is difficult. And Romans chapter 8 is the dead center, the heart of the book, and where he brings together this new life. We started this series last week. We're calling this series A New Life. And we recognized a couple things I want to make sure we lay in the groundwork. Um, One is that the Christian life doesn't actually always feel new to us. Um, nor is it always one th- something that we discuss as a new life. Sometimes we discuss the Christian life as a modified life or an improved life or a changed life. And all of those things are good. All of those things ought to be happening. But at the basis, the root foundation of a Christian life is not that it's changed, modified, or even different. It's that it's brand new. And I suggested last week that Christianity for the person loses its newness, you know, that new car smell, that that new feeling, because the only place we look for new things is inside of ourselves sometimes. New feelings, new thoughts, new motivations, new attitudes. And the reality is it's not always there. You know, the guy that was pre-conversion and the guy that's post-conversion, Anthony, sometimes mixes and sometimes isn't always that new person. Um, We are called not just to be new, but we're also called to live in light of new realities. You see, the presence of Jesus, birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, that entrance of God into the world changed things forever. 
It brought us new realities that we have never known, the world has never seen, and the world outside of Christ cannot know. And you and I are called to respond, not just to say, how can I be new inside of me, and I'm supposed to feel new every day because I'm a Christian. That's not how it works. In fact, we're actually supposed to respond to the new realities of the world in light of Jesus Christ. And as we respond to that new world in Jesus, we ourselves become new. And I mentioned last week, um, the best illustration that I can think of for this, uh, you've got to at least have some exposure to the books, but C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and Narnia is this beautiful, wonderful place where, you know, things are lovely, things are wonderful, unless they're under the control of the White Witch, but um, it's this beautiful place. And people access Narnia in different ways. And what's interesting is when the people come into Narnia, and they see this new world, they themselves recognize themselves. They, they know who they are. They know where they came from. They know that they are not from here, and this is all new to them. But as they respond to the new world, whether it's talking animals or, you know, the beautiful scenery, how they respond to that new world eventually makes them new people. And my suggestion to you is this, that you become new not just by looking inward and saying, I've got to feel new this morning. That's not how you become new. You become new by responding to new realities in Jesus Christ. New answers, new offers that the world has never known. And outside of Christ, you'll never know. Last week, I mentioned to you that we have a new freedom, that the world exists under the cloud of condemnation. We all know it, whether we call it condemnation or not, we all live under that. And we all agreed, I think, for the most part, um, that we can agree that there is something wrong with the world. Whether you're religious or not religious, whether you are a believer or an atheist, whatever, however you span on that spectrum, everybody agrees there are things in this world that are not right. Now, we all call them different things, and we all have different ways that that problem can be answered, but all of us agree in this world as people that things are not as they should be. Things are broken. And in the world of Christianity, we call that the root problem is sin. And sin is the, the constant obsession with self, focusing on self. And so... Um, what we're wanting to offer is, as we talked about last week, in Christianity, you have a new freedom. That the law of sin does not have to govern us anymore. We can, in fact, be free in Jesus Christ under the law of the Spirit, which brings us life. Tonight, we're going to talk about a new solution. So Christianity puts forward to, for all of us to consider that the problem with the world, what is wrong with the world, is sin. And that starts with us, and that, that goes to all people, that the problem with the world is sin. And people throughout all of time of history have been trying to solve the problem of sin many different ways. When sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, God immediately responded by beginning to solve that problem for us. God had a single overarching plan. He said in Genesis 3 verse 15 that, he will, that, that Satan will bruise the heel of his chosen one. But that chosen one will finally strike the defeating blow to Satan by bruising his head. And from that point, God had a single plan on how he was going to solve sin. Now, this plan had two steps. And you've got to know both of these steps to understand how they fit together. The first thing that God did in response to sin was giving 
us a law. When he called through Moses the people of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to, to Mount Sinai and there, through Moses, gave them a law. We call it the Ten Commandments. And in that law, God began the process of dealing with sin. The second thing he did was give us his son. We'll see that in just a moment. But these two gifts, the giving of the law and then the giving of his son, are one plan with two parts where God is trying to solve our problem of sin. These two gifts, they serve different purposes in the one universal plan to save mankind from the disease of sin. And they were always intended to work together. But we sort of get these solutions mixed up. I want to try to help us see that tonight from our text. You notice in verse 3 it says this. That God has done for us what the law weakened by flesh could not do. The law couldn't do something. Let's talk quickly about what the law was for. Sin actually existed in the world before there was law. Um, from Genesis 3, before the law, the, the law of Moses, there was sin in the world, right? From Genesis 3 until Exodus 20, was there sin in the world? Absolutely. So why did God give the law? What was the point of God giving the law? Was that God just saying, here, humans, here's the law. You try to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, maybe I'll show up later and see if I can come up with a better answer. But this is the best thing I've got so far. That was not what God was doing. When God gave the law, he gave it as an expression, first of all, of his holiness. This is what it takes to approach me. This is what it takes to be in my presence. Psalm 24 says, who can ascend to the hill of God? Who can stand in his holy presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And there's not been a man outside of Jesus Christ be able to do that. You see, the law was God's expression of his holiness and it was his expression of how mankind can prepare himself to approach God. This, the law, is what it takes to be acceptable in God's sight for you to keep the law. And because you and I choose to live from, outside, from in ourselves, whether we trust ourselves, our strength of ourselves, the ability of ourselves, um, we fail to meet that law. And so what God is doing in the law is this. He's diagnosing sin. Paul said it this way in Romans 5 and then Romans 7. He said, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't really know what sin is. The purpose of God giving us the law was not to deliver us from sin, but to diagnose our sin for us, to tell us we have a problem. You wouldn't know that you have a problem unless God laid down the diagnosis for you. But here's where this happens. If you and I were actually able to take the law, the Ten Commandments, right? and keep those perfectly from birth to death, that would be what the Bible calls a works-based salvation. You would be able to work your way into the presence of God because you were right, and Jesus was able to do that. But unfortunately, because of our own inability, we can't do this. But this is the system that the world operates under. This is actually what, what we have done in our culture and our world is taken what God meant to be as a diagnostic tool for our sin and made it our solution. We live under the system of the solution that says, I can earn my way into being right with God. I can earn my way into being right with mankind. I can earn my way into being a righteous person. We have believed this system. Whether people call it, whether people do it in religion or not, people live under a works 
based salvation. What I do and who I am has got to be enough because that's what I present myself as to be accepted. And this works-based system is all over in every walk of life. Now, people don't call it religion and people don't maybe not call it Christianity, but just think about it, um, how our world operates. In a lot of ways, it makes sense, right? Um, how people get promotions and jobs. It's works bit typically, right? I mean, listen, there's probably some you know, political maneuvering at times in, in businesses, and that's not what I mean, but for the most part, it's works-based. How do kids earn grades? What would teachers say, right? We don't give grades, you what? You earn grades, right? And, and this system in, in, those, in those pockets makes sense. But here's what we do. We take that concept that says, I have to get everything that I need to get and earn everything I'm going to have, and whatever I am, that's what I've got. We take that system, we say, that's going to solve our sin problem. And it simply can't solve it. It has no power to do that. And so when you and I take that system of law, which says, what I do, that's what I deserve. What I earn, that's what I should keep. When we take that system and we bring it into our faith, into Christianity, we've got a great problem we've got to deal with. We live under the belief that the law is a solution to sin, and it's not. And here's the deal. When you live, which we all face this challenge, when you live with the law as the solution to your sin, you have two options. Option number one is delusion. I mean, you have to be blind to this. You have to be blind to your actual sin. If you're going to live under the system that says, I know that I'm impressive enough before God for him to accept me, you have to live under delusion. You have to be blind to that. And, and most people that live in this way are very, very keenly aware of other people's sin and very blind to their own sin. They're aware of what they're good at and they're kind of uh, you know, selectively ignorant about what they're not good at. They, they highlight the things that they master, like maybe they're good at certain aspects of Christianity, but they don't really want to talk about the things they're not good at. You have to, if you're going to live under the system of law and present yourself before God, either be under delusion and if you're not deluded about your sin, meaning that you know about it, you'll then be in despair. If you live under law, you're either blinded to your sin or you're aware of your sin and you have no answer for it. What do you do? If law is your solution and you have sin, what are you going to do? Either blind yourself to it or be in despair. That's the only options you have. Because as Paul said in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. So you either have to lie about your sin to yourself or you're under the weight of that sin and you can't solve it yourself. The problem is, as I've said, the law was never intended to be your solution. It was intended to be your diagnosis, to wake you up, to teach you that you have sin and to drive you to a savior. And that's where you get your new solution. Look in uh, verse three. God has done what the law could not do weakened by our flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the law um, according to the flesh but according to the spirit this solution is one that if you look in all of the worldviews that we see in history you look at all the other religions in the world nobody has ever come up with a solution like this to the problem of mankind and their sin. No one has ever thought of this. Because this solution is not, 
mankind needs to figure out. This solution is this. God has done for us what we could not do. He says, first of all, what God did. God stepped in to do for us what the law could not do. Now, the law was never supposed to be our savior. It was just supposed to be our diagnostic tool. And because of our weakness, our inability to keep it, the law could never save us. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with our inability to keep it. And so God stepped in for us. How did he do that? Look at the second part of this. He did it by sending his own son in our likeness. In every way, here's what Jesus did. He became like us. Of his own choice, of his own volition, Jesus Christ existing as the Son of God in divinity with God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son chose to come and be made exactly like us. To walk in the flesh like, he, like we're in the flesh. To have weaknesses and challenges. To have difficulties. To experience frailty. To know temptation. And ultimately, as Hebrews says, to taste death. He walked through every piece of that for us. And look what he did in doing that. He sent his own son, in verse 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not that he was sinful, but he experienced life in the form of weakness of flesh. And for sin, he did something. He condemned sin in the flesh. In coming to earth as a human, Jesus Christ accomplished the task of condemning sin. Now, this phrase doesn't mean that he declared that sin is condemnable, meaning like uh, he, he walked on the earth, he lived perfectly, and he showed you that you shouldn't sin. That's not really what this uh, verse is meaning when he says he condemned sin. What it really means, that word condemned, means to bring the judgment down upon something. You see, he actually handed down Jesus Christ in his life and death the final judgment on sin so that those who are in Christ no longer have the judgment for their sin waiting for them. So all of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, stand in judgment before him, waiting to be judged by God, deserving of that. But at the cross, Jesus bore the weight of our judgment so that he condemned sin. And those that are now in Christ Jesus don't have on the end of their life waiting a judge saying, your sin has to be paid for because it's already been paid for. You see, here's the beauty of this answer that God has given us. It is not an answer that says, you have to pay for it. But it's also not an answer that says, eh, don't worry, it doesn't need to be paid. It's neither one of those. It's not the answer that says, eventually, law, you're going to have to pay. Nor is it an answer that says, ah, let's just let up on this rule thing. Forget about it. It's a little too strict. Just, eh, we don't need to pay for this. At the cross, God was both just, upholding the righteousness of his law, punishing Jesus, and he was the justifier, saving those who would trust Jesus. He did that both, both those things in one event at the cross, and he condemned sin. He was able to do this because Jesus took the punishment, not as a sinner, but in the place of sinners. The punishment for sin was given the penalty has been paid. The law of God has been satisfied. The expectation of God's law has been satisfied. Look what he says in verse 4. After he said he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that, here's what he was trying to accomplish. The righteous requirement 
of the law would be fulfilled in us. Don't miss this point about Jesus' work at Calvary. This one sometimes gets uh, missed in Christianity because we sort of have this, um, you know, Hollywood hero thing where Jesus just like jumps in front of us, bodyguard, takes the bullet, and dies. No, no, his life was way more complex than that, way more deep. He did so much more for us. He came, lived a sinless life, died the death that we should have died, and in doing that, fulfilled every part of the law. You remember that place in the Sermon on the Mount? Before Jesus started teaching, he says to those that are around him, which were mostly uh, social misfits, outcasts of society, those that weren't really righteous or religious, um, those that looked to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious people of their day and said, I can't get into God's kingdom because I'm not as good as them. And these were kind of the outcasts in Galilee, most likely, who, who were listening to Jesus. And he says this, unless you have a righteousness that is better than the Pharisees, you won't get into the kingdom. Now, how many of us in here have that kind of righteousness? Anybody? You know, the Pharisees, the 586 laws, they used to measure themselves daily and see how many of the 586 they got right. So they would score themselves and say, I got 542 today. What did you get, 551? Ah, you beat me today, but I'm going to beat you tomorrow. And they, they were competitive about how perfectly they kept the law. And Jesus says, you see those people that live meticulously to the law. Unless you have a righteousness, meaning fulfilling the law better than they do, you won't even sniff the kingdom. How do you think those people receive that information? All the air just let out of their balloon, right? The glimmer of hope that we might have had that this Son of God is talking to us. Ah, there it goes. All the hope I had. What am I going to do? What was Jesus giving us a prelude to? Not the righteousness that you and I would be able to generate, but a gift of righteousness that would come from Him. He lived sinlessly. He didn't just come and eliminate the old law and its requirements. He didn't just come and say, these laws are too strict. These poor humans, now I know, they can't live up to it. Let's just get rid of that. I'll die on the cross to get rid of the law. That's not what he did. When he died on the cross as a perfect person, the requirements of the law were fulfilled. So God looked at him and said, hey, you've done it perfect. I'm impressed with you. Come be in my presence. And Jesus said, but I'll die instead. And at the cross, what people... Um, uh, you know, St. Augustine, I think, coined this phrase a long, long time ago. He called it the great exchange. At the cross, God, Jesus took from us our sin. But he didn't just take our sin. He gave back to us a gift. And that gift was his record of righteousness. So right now, by the grace of God, you look to heaven in front of God and you say, I have a perfect record, not because of me, but because of Jesus. No one in the world has ever thought of a solution like this. No one. There's no worldview. There's no religion. There's no method. There's no system that has ever thought of keeping the law perfectly and then gifting it to people by faith. No one has ever come up with that. And here's what, hap here's what happens when you actually accept this, when you understand it. When you walk out of here and you say, you feel the weight of the law, like I've got to live up to the standard of God. And you realize that you don't. And then you look at Jesus and he says, let me take what keeps you from God and let me give you what's put you in the blessing of God, righteousness. And you say, 
but God, I didn't earn this. This isn't my grade on the test. This isn't my record of righteousness. I'm not perfect. This just shouldn't be mine. And he says, I know, I know. It's a gift. I want you to have it. Enjoy my fellowship. What does that produce in the heart of people that really get that? Gratitude, which sanctifies us to become like Christ. That draws you near to God. And here's what happens in people in Christianity when they live under law but kind of have a dabble of grace. Uh, see, the fake grace, the cheap grace that we oftentimes live under is, is like 80% law, which is the law that I can keep, and grace covers the 20%, the gap that I can't keep. That's not grace. That's a Band-Aid. That doesn't work. That doesn't transform you because here's what it motivates you to do. Only keep the parts that you can keep and lie about the parts that you can't keep. Grace is this, all of it, the requirements, I fulfill them. Accept them as a gift. And in that gratitude, I'll change you to become like Jesus Christ. There is no other belief in the world that has offered you this kind of solution. And I would encourage you to check yourself, really, um, very frequently. Those of you that have been Christians a long time, really check yourself and ask yourself, which solution do you use? Which do you turn to? The old one that is law? You get what you deserve, you earn what you keep, keep what you earn? Or grace? An incredible gift of righteousness that I didn't deserve. This isn't my score on the test. But I'll accept it because of what Jesus has done for me. Only one of those will make you a new person. And in Jesus Christ, you've got to live in response to that new reality. And when you do, you become new day by day. Like uh, this uh, lamentation says, his mercies are new every morning. How do you partake in this? Let me just show you real quick in verse 4. This righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. How? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Very simple. How we partake in this? You walk according to the Spirit, not the flesh. Walk means the how you live, how you conduct yourself, the way you live your life. When he says according to, what he means is that which drives you, that which motivates you, that which regulates your life. When grace regulates your life, you become a person of gratitude and a person of faith who trusts the work of Jesus and it changes you. And your options are one of two. This is the only options you have. You either walk according to the flesh, which doesn't just mean like sensual passions, you know, like when we think of flesh. What flesh means is that which comes from your power, your ability, your resources, and that's it. That's what it means of flesh, meaning I live under the law and I only, imp I only bring to God what I can produce, and that's it. He says, if you live your life that way, you won't walk in this great new world. But if you live according to the Spirit, that means the one who gives us life, we submit to him. We trust him. We have gratitude for him. And we have complete faith, not in our work of the flesh, but in the work of what Jesus Christ has done for us and given to us as a gift through grace. This is a solution that the world has never heard of. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the very thing that we as Christians stand on. And when we understand the roots of this, it is the very thing that motivates our progressive sanctification for the rest of our lives. When you get this gospel, that's what motivates you for the rest of your life to continue to grow, to become more like Jesus. And until you get that, you'll be operating under the old solution, the old system of law, which will never ever really change your life. It will just be a measuring stick that diagnoses where you always mess up. So if tonight that solution has not been yours, uh, maybe you've been living under the old solution, I want to encourage you to live under the new reality bought by Jesus Christ 
created by him so that you and I can respond to that and finally become new people. Won't you come as we stand and sing?